Well, grace to you all in peace uh, to you from God our Father, our Lord and Savior Jesus, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. You know, this past week, I had the, the great privilege. I got together with my kids, all my kids, and I got to hold my grandbabies as well. And uh, we read lots of stories and had lots of fun, and they were exhausting. They're a lot of work. But it reminded me of another story. And it was about a teacher who was reading the story of the three little pigs. And she got to the part of the story where she said, And so the pigs went up to the man with a wheelbarrow full of straw and said, Pardon me, sir, might I have some of that straw to build my house with? And the teacher looked out at the class and said, What do you think that man said? And all of a sudden, a little boy in the back raised his hand. He goes, I know, I know, I know, I know. He said, Holy smokes, a talking pig. (laughs) I know, I know. Unexpected. You didn't think it was going to go that way, did you? But that's what God's word does. It takes us into avenues and ways that we might be not looking at as a way of moving forward. So, may we listen to God's word this day, listen to what God is saying to us from the Gospel of Mark, and join me in this little prayer. Dear God, we may not be ready for your kingdom, but bring it anyway, because it's what we need, even if we don't know it or even want it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today there were a lot of, uh, in that gospel reading, there was a lot of things that might have us going, what is Jesus saying there? But in the Gospel of Mark, we need to know that Jesus is being emphasized as the prophet, the healer, the miracle. And by we get to the time we get to chapter 3, we're finally going to be in, in Mark for most of the summer till we get to the end of July and August where we go into John, the sixth chapter, and we do six weeks of bread. But for now, we're going to be in Mark. And we're in this third chapter, and up to this point, Jesus has been casting out unclean spirits. He's already appointed the 12 apostles to work with him. And... Uh, Just before our lesson today, what we know is, is that the unclean spirits know who Jesus is. They say, you are the son of God. But yet today in our gospel reading, the crowd, the scribes, and even Jesus' family, they don't know that Jesus is the son of God. They don't have it figured out. It says, when Jesus' family heard it, they went out to restrain him, for people were saying, he's gone out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebul. By the rule of the demons, he casts out demons. So if anyone ever called you crazy, you're in good company. They called Jesus crazy too. But this passage seems, it seems a little unusual. I mean, it might be a little foreign. We don't think of demons and spirits very much. And this whole, who is Beelzebul? That name actually means Lord of the Flies, and Beelzebul was the chief demon. So why would people claim Jesus is the chief demon? I mean, all Jesus has done so far is heal people, help people, rid them of unclean spirits. So why would they be angry about that? It's because of this, that Jesus was introducing an understanding of God that was frightening. Why was it frightening? Because it's a picture of a God who is wildly more gracious and unrelentingly more merciful than they imagined. Jesus talked about a God who refuses 
to respect the lines we draw around who's in and who's out. There's a reason that people were coming around Jesus. It says, when Jesus went home, the crowd came together again so that he and the disciples couldn't even eat. There were so many people packed in around Jesus. Most of them were the unwelcome because Jesus was welcoming them. And so the scribes, who are like most of us religious folk, are pretty sure they know who is right and who is wrong. I mean, we're pretty sure we know what people have to do to be right with God. And so when Jesus comes introducing a different picture of God, one that welcomes those who are outcast and despised, well, the scribes got nervous. Maybe we do too. I mean, we try so hard to do the right things, and if anyone can just get in, then what? I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm pretty good with lines and with definitions and with categories. I mean, I like to sort things. I like to put, you know, green blocks and red blocks and blue blocks and put them all together because it helps me feel more safe and secure. It helps me to make sense of this confusing world. Yet the trouble with God is, at least the God Jesus proclaims, is that God doesn't respect any neat alignment. But our God comes to welcome all, receives all, and loves all. In fact, according to Jesus, anytime you draw a line between who's in and who's out, you'll find God probably on the other side of the line. And so the religious leaders of Jesus' day not maybe unlike religious leaders of today, cannot imagine and maybe even feel threatened by the God Jesus declares. And so they claimed, oh no, he's demonic. He's Beelzebul. He's the chief demon. To be honest, I'm probably not too worried about all the folks accusing Jesus of being demonic. I know Jesus can take care of himself, no matter what his family may think. But I'm worried about us. And the ways in which we label those things that might seem foreign or unnatural or different as demonic. You know, those things that we don't understand, things that might threaten our preconceptions or call into question our categories. And if we call them demonic, hmm, I'm worried about that. So how do we know God is at work? I think if someone's being helped, healed, or welcomed, or accepted, I think that's probably God at work. And what I know is that the Spirit of God, we're in the season after Pentecost. This is the season of Pentecost. About the Spirit of God moving, calling, building up, creating faith. I think that Spirit is still moving in our age today. And I think we are in, being invited by that Spirit to imagine that God's mercy is wider and more deeper than we could ever imagine it to be. And that our God is redefining our expectations and broadening our horizons and our visions about maybe who is acceptable, what, and definitely what our life as the church, the called out people, is to look like. I mean, who could have imagined 
That God would choose a pandemic that took over a year as a way to deploy the church out of the building and into the world. Definitely was not on my horizon. No vision at all from this guy. And if you ask, most pastors felt threatened by that expanded vision of what the pandemic did. It can make us feel defensive. It can make us justify our views, our beliefs. Maybe we need to wonder if God is doing a new thing. Or maybe God is doing the same old thing and we're finally seeing it as a new thing. But how do we know God's doing a new thing? I think it's an important question. And it might make us a little more sympathetic to the scribes that Mark is describing here in his gospel because I know those scribes who love God with all their heart, all their life, did not set out to oppose God's inbreaking kingdom. Those scribes did not set out to resist God's grace. It's just that the God Jesus proclaims and embodies is so much bigger than what they imagined or could picture. They've been carrying around their image of God. And that image that Jesus described, they called demonic because it was so different than what they imagined. So how do we know what God is up to so we don't fall into the same trap as those scribes? I think Jesus gives us a clue. If it's generally of God, it will be characterized by the love of God. And it will be in opposition to everything that robs God's children of abundant life. So when we're faced with the question of whether a new thing is of God, before we stand against it, I think we need to stop and ask a question. Does this new thing introduce more love into the world? The world that God created, the world that God loves so much. And does this new thing draw more people into God's loving embrace? I think that will help us as we begin to envision new things that God is up to. Then Jesus says this, troubling. He says, truly I tell you, people will be forgiven their sins and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit can never have forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said he has an unclean spirit. Those verses there have probably caused more consternation, more fear among faithful Christians than probably any other verses in the Bible. Now, most experts claim that these are really hard to interpret. Most biblical scholars are confident that they think they know what Jesus means here, but there's room for a little doubt. So maybe a good Lutheran question, if you remember your catechism at all, is Luther would say, so what does this mean? Perhaps we should ask up front, is why do these verses threaten us? I think it's because it names, seems to name anyway, one sin blaspheming the Holy Spirit that cannot be forgiven. And if there is a possibility that there is something that you or I can do that may put us beyond the reach of God's grace, I want to know what that is because I don't want to go there. I mean, that's what 
That's, that's what we're thinking. So this sin seems to revolve around rejecting God's good work in Christ and naming it as the work of the devil. This sin is failing to recognize God's Messiah, rejecting the new revelation of God in Christ, refusing to acknowledge the work of the Spirit of God who is renewing and redeeming creation. That's what most scholars think Jesus is naming here. But that doesn't mean it's a one-time slip of the lip or anger of the heart. You see, there's a sense of ongoing or constant setting one's face against God's activity that seems to be the implied sin. So the sin that Jesus names here is an ongoing, ever-present refusal to be open to the movement of the Spirit, that is, the Holy Spirit, which means this. I think this is good news. That you and I cannot sin in this way by accident. We can't all of a sudden say, oh, I stepped out of bound accidentally. No. This is more intentional. In fact, it's not something that you probably do or say. It's more of a way of being, a way of living in utter rejection of God. So if you are worried at all about committing this sin, I can assure you you haven't. Because the fact that you worry about it says you love God. Finally, we can say this particular verses are, we're never really sure what the intended audience was that Mark was talking about. There could have been some particular concern that Mark was talking to his community about that 2,000 years later he would never imagine that we'd be asking or wondering what that was. We know that some verses are harder to interpret than others precisely because they're rooted in some questions we don't know or some context of a community that was being addressed. So while we can be concerned about what Jesus is saying, I want to hear, I want you to hear this. Our salvation doesn't rest on getting every text exactly right. Our salvation rests on God's grace alone. And finally, the last part of our text. When Jesus' mother and his brothers and sisters came, standing outside, they sent to him and called to him. A crowd sitting around Jesus said to him, Your mother and your brother and your sisters are outside asking for you. And he replied, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my brother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Not the scripture you want to read from Mother's Day. That had to be hard to hear. Especially for Jesus' mother and sisters and brothers. I mean, here they have. They've come to find Jesus. They're worried about him. People are saying all kinds of things about him. People, even this family now, think he's a little crazy. I mean, Jesus is kind of famous People are following him around. They're coming to his house. He's like a first century rock star. And we know rock stars can go over the edge. And so here's Jesus' family trying to go here to their rock star sibling and pull him back. And all they get in return is, who are my brother and my mother and my sisters? Yeah, that had to hurt. 
You've probably heard the proverb, blood is thicker than water, which means we may argue and even fight with our family, but we're still bound to them in ways that we'll never be bound to with our friends. So no matter the state of a relationship we're in with our family members, we're still likely to do things for them that we wouldn't do for anyone else, and we're likely to put up with things with our family that they do because they're family, which is why Jesus' statement turns heads maybe even turns things on their head. Because he's asserting a whole new way of relating to each other. In God's kingdom, Jesus says we're not joined to each other by birth. We're not bound by each other by traditional kinship. We're not knitted together primarily as a biological family. Rather, we find our identity, our kingship, our community in and through the relationship that we share with God. All those who live in and work for God's kingdom are family. You see, again and again in Mark's gospel, Jesus breaks down barriers, breaks the rules about who can associate with whom, inviting more and more people, as we've already seen, most of them unlikely people, to join his family, to be in his fellowship, his new community, formed not by blood of biological birth, but by the waters of baptism and the sweat of those willing to toil to build the kingdom. Last service out there driving, we had a baptism for Ethan James Hamas. And there he joined the family of God by the waters of baptism. Which means, I guess, Jesus started the original blended family, drawing people then and now from all different walks of life, ethnicities, backgrounds, nationalities, traditions, into one big, large family of God. Which I think now means, in the kingdom of God, water is thicker than blood. So today we're reminded that Jesus' vision of the kingdom can comfort us, but it might also trouble us. Trouble us to rediscover what it means to be a child of God. Trouble us to speak out against injustice in the world. Trouble us to stand up on behalf of those who may be vulnerable. Trouble us to put our neighbor's needs ahead of our own. Trouble us to join him in doing the will of God. You see, Jesus' troubling vision invites us to join him in building the kingdom. And making sure, as Paul says, so that grace can extend to more and more people. That we might give thanksgiving to the glory of God. I pray that we might be wise enough, faithful enough, and even bold enough to accept our Lord's invitation. It's hard work. Paul reminds us, Therefore, we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, and we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. What is unseen? I think the unseen is the adventure. I think the unseen is the love that we give and receive. I think the unseen is the people, the family of God. 
think the unseen is the grace upon grace that God extends to us, sometimes through the most unlikely people. And I think the unseen is the Spirit. The Spirit of God that calls, gathers, enlightens, and sanctifies. The Spirit that brings life to us. May the unseen help us not to lose heart, but to go about building the kingdom, the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Dear God, we may not be ready for your kingdom, but bring it anyway, because it's what we need, even if we don't know it or want it. In Jesus' name, amen.